Hello, everyone. I hope that you're enjoying this Feast of Tabernacles wherever you are on God's beautiful earth. Certainly happy to be able to come to you today in this recorded message. In the religious world today, there is a perception of Jesus Christ that has been influenced by pagan traditions, by religious art forms from a period known as the Renaissance in the Middle Ages. Now, while the paintings and sculptures were beautifully done by artistically gifted people, these works of art have no relationship with truth or fact. In most cases, they promote the worship of saints or the adoration of Mary. In almost every case in this artwork where Jesus Christ is depicted it as, as a baby or as an emaciated adult with an effeminate appearance. Now, these images fill the great art galleries and cathedrals of Europe and the Eastern Orthodox churches as well. These are venerated. They're uh, uh, something that are treasured highly by those churches and the people who are of that faith. As a result, millions of people through the ages have had these images which are false and misleading implanted in their minds. It's all a part of Satan's way to deceive and confuse people about who and what the true God really is. Even as God calls us, opens our minds to his wonderful truth, some of these wrong images and concepts may uh, linger in our minds. It's the way we are. It's, as Mr. Armstrong said, harder to unlearn than it is to learn. And so we may have some of these false images in there. Now, uh, one of the very popular attractions in uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas, is uh, what is known as the Great Passion Play. And it's patterned after uh, a great passion play in Germany. It's a life-size set that looks like ancient Jerusalem. And actors play out the last week in the life of Jesus Christ that led up to his crucifixion. I understand that the dialogue is straightforward and right out of Scripture without elaboration. And the play is done in what they think the dress of the day looked like at the time when Jesus lived, with actors playing the parts of Jesus and the disciples. Now, we certainly don't take any personal uh, opinion as the church or whether or not you should go. That's a personal matter, not a church policy, certainly. I don't like to see those sorts of things because it puts images in my mind that are hard to get out. Uh, because it will reflect men's ideas and not the way it probably really was. Now, even more conservative Protestantism, we see the false images and concepts are perpetuated in the pagan holy days of uh, Christmas and Easter and uh, the other things that they do. These images are there, planted in people's minds. In those churches, Christ is pictured as a babe in a manger. You all know the song, Away in a manger, no crib for his bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. And that's what people think about their Savior. Uh, the nativity scenes, including live reenactments, promote this theme. In books and sermons, Christ is pictured as a little lamb. Weakness is confused with meekness 
a sweet, mild, maudlin Jesus. But, brethren, the Bible, in the Bible, that is not the Messiah that we see described. Not the man of action and plain words, kind and compassionate, but a man of purpose and authority. And here we are as we keep this feast of Tabernacles, brethren, a time picturing Christ's rule on this earth. You've heard about that, and you'll hear more about that during this feast. Let's see what kind of God, what kind of king we will really have. We will find that it's very different from what this world has been misled to believe. As we look at the plain words of the Bible, we will see a picture emerge of an all-wise, all-powerful God family presently made up of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. The title for my sermon is The Power of God. Now, King David, a man after God's own heart, seemed to have a deep understanding about the power of God. Just before he died, at age 70, he gave his final public prayer. And it's recorded for us. In 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. And we'll read the words of King David. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Stressing, of course, that God is eternal. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great. And to give strength to all. Therefore, now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are, and who are your people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and are of your own have we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. And so David understood that we as human beings are strangers and pilgrims in this physical life. And he understood the great power of God and wrote about it, read about, it was written about it and so eloquently in his prayer. Now, brethren, we speak of his power and of his might, yet as finite, fallible, weak human beings, I don't think we get it. I don't think we really understand how powerful and how great our God really is. Maybe if we focus on it, particularly at the Feast of Tabernacles, when we are picturing a time when He will be here and in charge and His kingdom will be on this earth, if we focus on it, if we analyze what the Bible says about the power of God, we can better understand it. And it's important to us now and in the future, the time that we are keeping right now. Brethren, today, let's look at seven aspects of God's power. First, 
He has the power to create. Now, you're very familiar with this. Turn back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, the beginning, always a good place to start. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. God, the great creator, mankind denies that today and has all sorts of unprovable theories and and, uh, ideas about how what we see about us came to be. But the Bible is clear. There is a creator. God created heavens and earth. Now, eons ago, as man reckons time, now there's no conflict with science when you understand it, not at all. And yet, People who want to attack the credibility of God's Word seem to think that there is. Uh, We have photos today from the Hubble telescope that give us greatly increased knowledge about the universe. And it boggles the mind. It is so vast. It is so incredibly vast that it's, it's hard for us as human beings to understand it. And when we see these beautiful photographs, the colors, when we understand the distances involved, all of that, It really does uh, make us stand in awe of what God created. He is the creator. Turn over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We have a beautiful psalm about this very subject. Psalm 19. This is a psalm of David. I'm sure as a shepherd boy out under the stars for days on end and seeing this incredible creation Without pollution, without anything to distract from it, he was inspired. And he wrote Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Can there be any doubt? Can there be any doubt when you look at this creation that there had to be a great creator with great power? It's so orderly. It's so beautiful. It all fits together so well. Someone sustains it. And David understood that. Verse 2, day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Oh, that mankind would just accept this at face value and understand what God is teaching them through the creation. Verse 3, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So we read about this. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle or a tent for the sun. And you can read the rest of this beautiful psalm where it describes the physical creation and what we as human beings should learn from it. All of this that we see demonstrate very clearly the power and might of God. But it's not just something that we find in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. No, you know this well, but let's look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Here we see the New Testament account of creation. And it's the same story from a different viewpoint, from a different facet. And it's very inspiring. John 1, in the beginning, and of course we had in the beginning in Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Incredible to think about this. And we it's here for us to remember. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So 
clearly Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament, who was the Savior in the New Testament, created all things. All things as we go on. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Life inherent. Life inherent in this great Creator God. It goes on and said that He was the light. Is this not a dark world? Is there not darkness today around this world as people struggle with problems that seem unsolvable? And yet there is light. It's in God's Word. Jesus Christ, the Creator, certainly was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we're privileged, brethren, to be among the few that understand these things, while the great teeming masses of mankind do not. I hope we could appreciate that, particularly at this time of year, when we're together in peace and safety, enjoying this wonderful feast. Turn over to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 15, we continue this theme that God has the power to create. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, talking about Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible. Yes, there are things that we can't see. It was all created by the Creator. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. All of creation. Brethren, can we grasp it? Can we grasp how great the being is who could create all of these things? Bringing his plan to pass down through the millennia? I hope that we can grasp it. It's very important. And one of the main things that shows us that is the fact that he is the creator God. Let's fast forward to the book of Revelation, looking down in time. We've looked backwards. Let's look now forward. Revelation chapter 4. Here we see this fascinating account of the 24 elders. Revelation 4, verse 11. Here you have these 24 elders who fall down before him. And who worship Him. And what do they worship Him? How do they praise this great being? We'll see that in Revelation 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. Even in the kingdom, even when these 24 elders are there, what do they praise uh, God for? In Jesus Christ, of course. You created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. They worship God by acknowledging God as creator. And I'm sure that during this festival, you are worshiping God. Keep in mind that he is the great creator. Now, not only did he set it all in motion, uh, he controls it even now. Let's look at a psalm that is a prophecy. Most of the time, we don't think of psalms as prophecies, and yet often they contain prophecy. Look back in Psalm 65. Psalm 65. 
Psalm 65, and we'll begin in verse 5. I hope that you'll read the whole psalm because it's very inspiring. But Psalm 65, verse 5 says, By awesome deeds and righteousness you will answer us. Looking forward, you see, you will answer us. O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas, who establish the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power. The topic today is the power of God. And here it says that this being is clothed with power. You who will still the noise of the seas. A prophecy of what will happen. The noise of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. So clearly we see that the uh, uh, the Psalm of David, he predicted, he prophesied through inspiration that that this being would calm the seas. Let's see if that happened. Turn back to Matthew chapter 8. You know this parable very well. Or this, actually it's not a parable. You know this story very well. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8, verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. This was not an ordinary storm, it seems, but a great tempest. You read about that in Jonah, uh, when a great tempest, you see, came up. And you know that story. But here we see Jesus and his disciples were in the boat. And a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. Do you have this mental image of the waves crashing over this small craft? But he was asleep. Jesus was undisturbed by this potential disaster. He was asleep. Verse 25, then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us. I'm sure there was a great sense of urgency in their voice. We are perishing, they said. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Just as David long before wrote that he would calm the seas. He had the power over creation. He created it. He could control it. Clearly, we know that he did this time and again. Look at Matthew 14. Matthew 14. We'll begin in verse 24. Matthew 14, 24. Again, being able to calm the seas. It says in Matthew 24, verse, uh, Matthew 14, I should say, Matthew 14, verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So this was not a friendly breeze. It was something that was contrary, as it says. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. People use this as an analogy, and they kind of make light of it. But it actually happened. And our Savior was able to walk on the water in the midst of a stormy sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, verse 26, they were troubled. I imagine so. These were fishermen. They knew what happened when you fell in the water or when you got in the water. You sink. But here was Jesus coming to him, and that was not the case. He was walking on the water, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. Don't don't worry, he says. Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. You can read the rest of the account, but it clearly shows that our Savior, far from being some weak and effeminate 
person had power over the elements and was able to walk on the water. Now, that was it is time. Let's fast forward again down in time to the future, a future that we know is coming because it's a part of God's plan. Turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6 will begin in verse 12. Here we see the sixth seal being opened. And what do we see? Revelation 6, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. So this earth will shake. And the, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars fell from heaven to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. We see that when the time comes, when it serves his purpose, he will again have great control over the creation and use it to bring about his will. Have no doubt, brethren, God has power over his creation. Let's look at the second point. God has power over the spirit world. Not only the physical world, but the spiritual world. Now, many today believe that there's a great struggle going on between God and Satan and his demons. Not so. That is not the case. The Bible is very plain. Turn back to uh, Genesis 3. Again, going back to where it all began. And there's a fascinating account here that lets us know who is in charge, even of Satan the devil. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So here we see that this cunning creature, this Satan, a fallen archangel. You know the story well, so I won't turn there, but you can read about it in Isaiah 14 verse 12 about this being who became Satan, the adversary. He became the epitome, the embodiment of evil, and manifested himself as a serpent. Now, drop down to verse 13. You know the story, so we won't read all the details. But in verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Deception! That's what Satan does, brethren. He is a deceiver, and he will deceive you if he can. That's what he does. He is this being, the father of lies, as Jesus Christ called him. Now, look at verse 14 of Genesis 3, and we'll see that God obviously has power over Satan. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. So the Creator God put a curse on this evil being. You are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And it goes on and talks a a prophecy here that we won't go into today. But clearly, God has power over Satan. I think it's very important that we understand that. Turn over to the book of Job. Another fascinating story, the book of Job. What wonderful lessons we can learn there. 
But we also learn something about Satan, the devil, and God's power in the book of Job. Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, why would Satan come before God? I'm sure it's because he was summoned. (laughs) It was like a meeting, and they come and make their reports. And so, clearly, he was summoned there. Uh, Otherwise, I think he would probably stay far away from God. Now, look at verse 12. You know the story how um, Satan tried to uh, taunt God and said about Job, if you just let me have him, he'll curse you. And so God gave him limited power. But look at verse 12, and we'll see what he says. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he, Job, has is in your power, in your hand, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You notice that... that um, God instructed him and limited him. He put bounds on what Satan could do. It shows clearly that God was in charge. Now, we pick up the story. You know what happened. Job's wealth was taken away. His family, except for his wife, was taken away. And in all of this, Job did not sin. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 5, we pick up the story. Um, Satan is again back before God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? I'm sure Job didn't know he was the subject of this conversation. But we pick up the story now in verse 5. Let's look at verse 4. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. So this Satan says, just let me have him. Let me... Put him in pain. Let me take away his health, and he'll curse you. Verse 6, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Satan could only act within the scope of authority extended to him by God. Clearly, God has power over the spirit world. You can read the whole story, and it's very inspiring. Now, fast-forwarding again down to New Testament times, look at Matthew chapter 4. Here we see the story of Jesus Christ having been in the wilderness and now in a weakened condition after fasting for 40 days was being tempted by Satan the devil. Matthew 4, verse 9. And Satan said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So, He had offered him food. He had taunted him about who he was. And now he's offering him the whole world. He's saying to Jesus, you don't really have to go through the plan that your father has for you. You don't have to suffer and die. I'll give it to you now. All you've got to do is worship me. And look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So he rebuked him, and he said, away with you. He ordered him to leave. And look at verse 11. Then the devil left him. So Jesus Christ ordered him to leave, and he did. Clearly, our God has power over Satan, over the spirit world. Let's look at another example. Turn over to Matthew chapter 8. Fascinating story. The Bible is full of them. Stories that uh, catch our interest and reveal eternal truths to us. 
Matthew 8, Matthew 8, verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Must have been a horrendous thing with these two men possessed by demons being fierce and, and making it dangerous and, and, and frightening to be, even be in the area where they were. And suddenly they cried out saying, What have you to do, we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Isn't it interesting? These demonic beings know the plan. And they knew that they had a time that they could do their thing and then they would be restrained. And he says, they said, have you come here to torment us before our time? Now, as we uh, read about this, we see uh, verse 30. Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So a big, a big uh, herd of pigs out there, swine. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Notice they asked for permission. These demon beings said, permit us. They knew that Jesus Christ had power over them. They had to obey what he said. Permit us. And we see what happened. And he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Had to be one stinking mess with this huge herd of hogs uh, all perishing in the water. But the point is that they had to ask, and Jesus said, go, and they had to go. Christ has that power. Now, as we think about this, let's look back at Revelation 20. Again, looking down in time, actually to the time that we picture being here at the feast. Revelation 20. Familiar scriptures to you all, but so important. Revelation 20. And we'll see what kind of power. We saw that in the garden, God was over Satan. And here we see in chapter 20 of Revelation, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into a bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released a little while. So here we see that on God's orders that Satan will be bound. It shows clearly that the great God and Jesus Christ have power over the spirit world. Let's push on, brethren. Let's look at the third point, illustrating God's great power. God has power to change hearts and minds. What a wonderful thing that is. He has the power to change hearts and minds and the course of human events. Now, the classic example of this power in a, in a, uh, an incredible story is found back in Daniel. So turn back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2. 
verse 20. You'll remember the story. The great king has had a very troubling dream. And none of his wise men or magicians or people that are in his court could answer this dream. They didn't know what it meant. And so Daniel was summoned. And then we pick up the story in verse 20 of Daniel 2. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Daniel was uh, a devout person who worshipped God. For wisdom and might are his. Daniel didn't take glory to himself. He pointed it toward God. Verse 21, And he, God, changes the times and the seasons. He, God, removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might, and you have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. So clearly, Daniel was understood that the great God had power and could reveal what the king's uh, dream was. And we know that he did. Daniel interpreted the dream and became in great favor with the king and was one of his uh, closest advisors. Now turn over to Daniel 4. Now we know that Nebuchadnezzar, this first great world-ruling uh, emperor, this king, uh, became very vain and very arrogant. He began, became full of himself, and it caused him a great deal of difficulty. He thought that uh, as he surveyed his incredible kingdom, that it was all by his doing and his might and his power and his wisdom. And God taught him a lesson. We'll pick up the story in Daniel 4, verse 16. It says, let's start actually in verse 15. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots bound with a band of bronze, iron and bronze let in the tender grass of the field. It says, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts. The him here being referred to is Nebuchadnezzar. So he's going to being king to grazing grass with the beasts. Verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. Can God change the hearts of men? He did anciently with this great king. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times or seven years pass over him. So, verse 17, this is the decision. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. Listen carefully, brethren. In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Have you wondered at times when you look at some nation being oppressed by some really base person who cares not for his people and is corrupt and so on? Clearly, sometimes God sets over nations the basest of men. It, God has the power. He is in charge. He can bring this to pass. Now, you can read uh, in Second Chronicles uh, 32 about... King Sennacherib, he was very uh, arrogant. He was the king of Assyria, and he was filled with himself, and he uh, flaunted that. 
And as you read the story in Second Chronicles, uh, you'll find in verse 21 of chapter 32 that God entered the fray, sent an angel, and Sennacherib's army was wiped out to the man overnight because God it was not pleasing to God that he was so arrogant. Now, God can intervene and change the affairs of history and the course of history and has in the past and will in the future. Now, God can also bring one with murder in his heart to repentance. A major miracle when you consider it. Let's look at an example. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Acts 9, verse 1. Then Saul, the one who became Paul, as we'll see, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he might, if he found any of who were of the way, the way of life that is Christianity, you see, the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this Saul wanted to, had murder in his heart. And he wanted to arrest and, and uh, take custody of anyone who was a Christian and bring them to Jerusalem for trial, for persecution. He was in a rage. We hear about rage today. Saul was in a rage against Christianity. Look at verse 3, Acts chapter 9. And as he, Saul, journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly, out of the blue, a light shone. And around, around him from heaven. So we find as we read this that he was struck down. This great light shined and um, he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You can read the rest of it, but drop down to verse 8. Then Saul arose from the ground. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. Think about this. From the pinnacle of power to the depths of despair. From being in charge with the power to arrest and even uh, have people killed to being led away blind. It must have been a great letdown for this man. Uh, verse 16. I hope you'll read all of it, but we'll, we'll go on down to verse 16. And we see... It, Christ said to him, let's begin in verse 15. The Lord said to him, go for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine. Here was a man murdering Christians and now God is going to use him as a chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So clearly we see that God brought this man with murder in his heart to repentance and gave him this incredible job. He said, you're going to suffer, but you will do my will. And you know the story. What a great servant of God the Apostle Paul became. As we think about this, brethren, we see that God has the power to change hearts and minds. Let's look at number four. The fourth point that I want to make in showing that God has great power. God has the power to forgive you. Now, why is that necessary? Why would that be important? Let's take a look. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 59. 
Isaiah 59. Beautiful words in Isaiah, always. And here it explains. It answers the question that I've just asked. Why is it necessary that we have our sins forgiven? And God has that power. Isaiah 59, verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Would there be anything more pitiful than a God with short arms? The point is that God is not limited. It's not that His arms are short or that His hands are shortened. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy, that it cannot hear. God can hear very well. And He hears your conversation, your small talk. He knows what goes on. Verse 2, But your iniquities, your sins, your wrongdoing, your breaking of the commandments, your sins... Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. It goes on here and says, For your hands are defiled with blood. And while we may not have murdered, we may have had murderous thoughts. We may have hated our brother, and it's the same thing. And your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. You can read the rest of the verses, but this certainly shows that our sins separate us from God. Our sins separate us from the great God. So if we're to have a relationship with God, if we're to have contact with God, our sins have to be forgiven. In Romans 6, 23, you know it by heart, so I won't turn there. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So we see that our sins separate us, so they need to be forgiven. Turn back a few pages to Isaiah chapter 1. Again, more beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah, inspired by God. Isaiah 1, verse 18. The prophet wrote, Isaiah 1, verse 18, Come, come now, let us reason together, says the Eternal, to have an in-depth dialogue, you see. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, bright red, hard to miss, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Is there anything that looks more clean or more pure than than purely uh, driven snow? It goes on and says, Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. It goes on and talks about that. It's it's a beautiful, uh, it's a prophecy of the redemption from sin, made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there's a wonderful addendum to this. There's another aspect of this that's hard for us as human beings to really grasp. That once we are forgiven, God doesn't even remember our sins. Look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah. Chapter 43, Isaiah 43, verse 25. It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Brethren, I hope we can learn from that, and we can forgive and forget, just as Jesus Christ, as our Heavenly Father, forgives us. When we truly repent and accept Christ's sacrifice and forgets our sins. It's a wonderful, wonderful principle that we need to understand. Now, Christ made it plain when he walked the earth that he had this authority. 
that he had the power to forgive sin. Look at Matthew chapter 9. This infuriated his detractors. It infuriated the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others. Matthew 9, verse 2. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic laying, lying on a bed, a poor man who was paralyzed and bedridden. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. What a wonderful thing. You would think that would be great cause for rejoicing. Not so, not at that time. Look at verse 3. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. They thought it was blasphemy that he said that he could forgive sin. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? You know, we are admonished as God's people in 1 Corinthians 13 to think no evil. It's a part of having love for our fellow man. Think no evil. Are we quick to impute motives? Are we quick to question someone about what they really meant? Are we looking for uh, bad things? I hope not, because Jesus said to those people, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Verse 5, For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed. And go to your house. Jesus had the power to forgive sin. He used this as a demonstration and then answered their charges and their criticism by saying that you may know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. It's a wonderful thing for us to understand that because our sins have been forgiven because Jesus has this great power. Turn over to uh, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of oil. You know the story. It's a wonderful story how she stood at his feet, verse 38, and began weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with a fragrant oil. Quite a show here of adoration to Jesus Christ. And then um, as we go on, drop down to verse 44. Jesus told the story about who would be forgiven. Those who had said much or who had said little, and we pick up the story in verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman who had just given this great display of affection and, and contriteness and brokenheartedness? I entered your house. <clears throat> you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. Now, that may seem a little foreign to us, maybe not to our European brethren, but at that time the custom was to give uh, a a kiss on the cheek. It was like a warm handshake, a, a warm greeting is what it means, of course. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins 
which are many, not, not a few, not light, sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at table with him began to say to themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Clearly, clearly Jesus Christ has that power and demonstrated it here. What was the message of the apostles when the church began? Turn over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We rehearse this and think about this on the day of Pentecost. But it certainly applies now as we think about this. Acts chapter 3. Verse 19, picking up the story in Acts 3, verse 19, Peter and the apostles told them, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. So here we see that what were the apostles preaching? They were saying that your sins would be blotted out if you accept Jesus Christ. Why? Because as Jesus said plainly, he had the power to blot out those sins, to forgive them. It's very important that we grasp that. And I'm sure that all of you do. Now, how does he do this? How is it accomplished that your sins are blotted out? We also have that information. Turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 11, Hebrews 9, verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the power, with the greater, uh, with with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Verse 12, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What an incredible thing. It's by the shedding of Christ's blood that our sins are forgiven and we have eternal Redemption. Drop down to verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no redemption. How are our sins forgiven? By the shedding of Christ's blood. The perfect sacrifice that takes away the sin of mankind. So it's an important thing. His blood was poured out in a sacrifice to cover our sins. And as we think about this, we need to be reminded, I think, of who Jesus Christ was. And he told his disciples right before his ascension. Turn back to Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority... Not part, not anything, any limitations placed on it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do we grasp that, brethren? 
Jesus Christ has all authority. God has the power to forgive sin. What a wonderful thing it is for us to realize that. Now, God has the power, as we begin point number five, God has the power to defend and protect you. Now, there are so many examples in Scripture, and you know them well. In the spring, we rehearsed uh, the story, the history of what went on in Moses' time. We know that God intervened with a series of miracles and brought the greatest nation on earth to its knees and saved Israel time and time again by great miracles. And it's recorded for us so that we can know about God's power to do that. We know in the time of the judges and the prophets how God intervened to see that his will was done. A lot of the judges were abject failures, but some did listen to God, and he intervened for them and used them to uh, accomplish his will. Certainly we know in the age of miracles when we had uh, Elijah and Elisha and the miracles that they did at that time and how God protected them when they were oppressed and when they were set upon and when they needed to be delivered. We know that God was able to do that. We know in several cases about the deliverance of the apostles when they were in dire straits or when they were exposed to danger. And you can read about those accounts. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy 33. There's a beautiful expression here, a beautiful memory hook, I hope for you, that that certainly is inspiring to me, and I hope that it will be to you. Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33. We'll begin in verse 26. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, talking about the great God, who rides the heavens to help you. You see, time and space are not uh, an impediment or a hindrance to God. And in His excellency and in His excellence on the clouds, the eternal God is your refuge. Listen to this beautiful expression. And underneath are the everlasting arms. So God's arms not only aren't shortened, He has everlasting arms. And He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. So here we have this thing that that God is our refuge. And we are underneath His everlasting arms. Just as a mother or a father might hold a small child and protect them then we should have that mental image of what God can do for us. Turn over to Psalm 27. Here's a prophecy. I think it's a prophecy of the place of safety. Beautiful words. Psalm 27. A psalm of David. Trust in the Lord and be not afraid is the subtopic in my New King James Bible. I hope that you read all of it. It's very, very inspiring. But we'll begin 27, Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Brethren, we ought not be fearful. We live in difficult times, and some of you live in dangerous places. But I hope that we can say these words. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I hope the answer is no one, because we put our well-being in God's hands. Look at verse 3. 
Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. Not confidence in ourselves. Not confidence even in the government that maybe provides defense for our country. But our confidence certainly will be in the great God who has promised to take care of us. Look at verse 5. For in the time of trouble, and we know that a time of great trouble is coming. A time like no other. And in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. Pavilion being a covered place, you see. He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. I don't know where this is, though I have my personal speculation. But I do feel like and believe that the scripture is plain. There is a place of safety. And I think David was writing about that. It is a prophecy. Turn over a few pages as we consider this subject. That God has the power to defend and protect you. To look at Psalm 46. Psalm 46, verse 1. Another uh, this is a, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength. You know, when we understand it, we have no strength. The only strength that we have is what God will give us. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Drop down to verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The God of Jacob. Read back in history, in Scripture, how God intervened for Jacob time after time. Read the prophecies of how he will intervene for Jacob, for Israel, in the future. And realize that those promises apply to us as Israelites. They apply to the Israel of God, the church of the living God. In this day. So it's important, brethren, that we really understand how powerful God is and that He can provide us safety. He can defend us. Turn over a few pages to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of of the Almighty. Again, a word picture of what it's like to be protected by God. I will say of the Eternal, He is my refuge and my fortress. You know, uh, anciently and even today, people build fortresses for protection. What is our fortress? The great God. My God and Him I will trust. Surely He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. You know, the trap if you're hunted. He can deliver you from that. And from the perilous pestilence, we hear a great deal today. Very sobering news about avian flu and the potential of a pandemic. We hear of all sorts of things that could uh, sweep the earth as pestilence. And it says here that he shall deliver you from the perilous pestilence. Claim that promise, brethren. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings... You shall take refuge. Colorful language showing that we can be protected. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. We have God's truth. 
and we try to apply his truth. And so it should be our protection. Verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night. What do we see in this world today? We see terror, and we shall not be afraid of it. Nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only your eyes, with your eyes you shall look and see the reward of the wicked. Verse 10, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near to your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Um, read the, the rest of the psalm. Um, it wraps up in verse uh, uh, 15. He says, He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. So I hope that we can uh, understand this. It's a very, very important thing. I want to take quickly a look at a very important prophecy about this point as we press on. Revelation 3. Revelation 3. Here's a prophecy of something that will happen, and we can count on this. Revelation 3, verse 10. It says, because, Jesus Christ's words here, you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. An hour of trial. It's coming, brethren. And he says he would keep us from it. And over in Revelation 12, a specific reference to a place. A place prepared. Revelation 12, verse 6. It says, the woman, referring to the church, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So a place prepared for the church. And then drop down to verse 14. But the woman, again the church, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Again, protected from Satan the devil. So we see, brethren, God has the power to to defend and protect you. Let's look at the sixth point. God has the power to heal and to make whole. Let's look at um, uh, Exodus 15. Exodus 15. Exodus 15, verse 26. Picking up the thought here, Exodus 15, verse 26. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Eternal who heals you. It's one of the names of God. I am the Eternal who heals you. It's very, very important. You can certainly... um, uh, read more about that. In Exodus 23, it repeats that. Back in Psalm 103. Very familiar to you. Psalm 103. Very important promise. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Not hard to do that when we're healthy, but certainly we need God's healing. Verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. 
who forgives all your iniquities, we talked about that, and who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. So we have this promise that God is our healer. Over and over, we see that Jesus Christ healed people in the New Testament. You can read about that in Matthew 12. You can read about it in John 9. The miracles where he healed the blind from birth, where he healed the deaf from birth, uh, where he uh, healed the, the child of the, the servant of the centurion. All of these incidences that showing the power of God, that he has the power to heal you. Now, brethren, we do what we can for ourselves. We maintain our teeth. We wear glasses. Uh, be assured that God has the power to heal us and make us whole. We do our part. God certainly will do his part. Brethren, our last point, the seventh point about God's power, God has the power to raise the dead. What an incredible thing. He has the power to bring about the great resurrection that will usher in his kingdom. The kingdom that is pictured by this great festival. Now, Christ did it while he was here as a physical human being. Uh, Let's look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, 9 verse 18, chapter 9, verse 18 of Matthew. Here we see the story of uh, a ruler who came to him who said in verse 18, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. The man had great faith. And so... Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And then it talks about a miracle where a lady just touched his garment and was healed. And, but we pick up in verse 23. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, Make room, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. They didn't have faith. They didn't believe. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose uh, and the report of this went in, out into all. And he, he raised this child who was dead. You know the story. We'll not turn there. Um, uh, about Lazarus in John 11. How Lazarus uh, died. Had been dead four days. And Jesus waited until some time went by. And then went and raised up this man. And there are other examples of how God raised the dead. I want to look at a great prophecy back in Ezekiel 37. Something that we look forward to. Something that will happen. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. Here we read about a valley of bones. Verse 12. Let's look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is cut off. Therefore prophesy, verse 12, and say to them, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and be, bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord who have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and have performed it. Brethren, this valley of dry bones pictures a time that we look forward to, and you'll hear more about that on the last great day. But the point is, God has the ability, the power to raise the dead. In Revelation 20, it gives details of this great event, and we'll be reviewing it again more detail on the last day of this great feast. 
Brethren, we can know from Scripture that God has the power to raise the dead. Brethren, as we rehearse and review the Scriptures and the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles, as we focus on the details of what God is doing and what He is going to do as He crushes the opposition, as He installs His government, His ways, and changes the landscape and the climate of this world, we need to understand that the Almighty God whom we serve and Jesus Christ, our Savior, they have the power to make it all happen. 